and it, it comes back a little bit also on the data side to the product design discussion we had at the beginning, right? Which is when you're designing the product, right? You're designing this yep. data product. Are you designing it for a member or are you designing it for your average constituent for them to understand the data, what it means and what action it should lead them to take potentially? Yeah, and I think the this is super important because what we, the choices we would make for designing a system for members or lobbyists or staff are vastly different than, than the choices you, we made for designing a system that hopefully would appeal to other folks outside of that system, outside of those systems. Uh, just a quick example of that is in represent, one of the things we do is like, we have a, uh, a fairly simple natural language processing, you know, technique that we use to like read through a member's press releases and then come up with things that they talk about a lot. And then also things that they talk about a lot, but other members don't talk about a lot. Sort of like unique or distinctive topics. And that list of distinctive topics, if you put it in front of like your average congressional reporter, they might have a sense of most, some of them, but if you put that list in front of like a resident of that like congressional district, they almost undoubtedly would have a, a good sense of almost all of them because like they are literally local terms. They are very specific things that are either going on or are fixtures of that district or that you know state. And so I, I if we're designing a system for members, like it's marginally useful, I suppose, for one member to understand what another member cares about in terms of like their local district. It could be useful in certain legislative contexts, but it's not, it's probably not the most useful information we could provide to other members. It, it is useful, I think, for folks back home to be like, hey, uh, in this district, like we have an, you know, like we care about the sage grouse in Colorado or where, you know, and 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 our member actually talks about it. Let me see what he let me see what he or she she says about it. Like a, as a way of kind of hopefully enabling or motivating exploration and sort of like, okay, well, I want to find out more about this. And and that's like I, I don't think we would, I don't think we would make that uh I don't think we'd make that decision if if we weren't tr really trying to think about what an average person who lives in that district might care about or recognize you want to give them something to recognize rather than a list of like legislative terms that doesn't mean much to them right well let's move on to the the uh, elections area i know you've done a lot of work in this space uh and and can you talk about that you know your you know the the institutions you've created and what data you collect and that kind of thing sure so it's been about eight years now almost uh since we started uh, Open Elections, which is a nonprofit project that uh, myself and my uh, friend and colleague, Sirdar Tumgorin started. And basically one of the reasons, the reason, main reason we started is at the time I was working at the New York Times, Sirdar was at the Washington Post and every election cycle, we would reinvent the wheel to a certain extent by going out and gathering uh, official election results from prior elections. And, you can, of course, for a certain amount of money, you can buy a lot of that stuff off of people, but our news organizations weren't super interested in spending a lot of money on this. 
but they want and you know on the assumption that like it's out there somewhere anyway and so we started the project with an eye of like let's make it possible so that other people don't have to suffer the way that we do to collect this information which was a noble goal but in hindsight was a little naive because collecting precinct level results from all 50 states and from the district is a significant task it's easier than it was the good news essentially is that like upwards of 40 42 states now at least make some kind of data about precinct level elections available um election results available for general elections at least but the remaining states are really sort of like the last mile kind of circumstance um and in the sense that like you we have to go county by county in states like new york uh and in you know if you want to get for example especially like for the election last year like if you want to understand the electorate and how people voted and what that election circumstances that election was conducted under then you need to know how people the method by which people voted right you need to know whether they voted in person or whether they voted by mail or whether they voted early and most states just don't publish that on a statewide basis like what you get in texas is a single file uh, with precinct level results with just a total number of votes per precinct and like that's of some use a, lot, a decent a fair amount of use but like it doesn't it doesn't address questions of like who the electorate really is and how they behaved in 2020. So to do that, you have to go and collect information from every county in Texas. And I now am fully aware that there are 254 of those, which is a lot. But uh, but it also teaches you sort of like how local governments and state governments, like what their practices are, what their habits are, how robust or weak their processes are um, because we get stuff that's handwritten still for small counties and this is really like our elections infrastructure is really a is a has a very sort of it's very reflective kind of of the societies at large in the sense that there are counties that are well resourced that have a fair bit of money that are used to conducting competitive elections and they do this well they understand what they're doing they're in the habit of having reporters ask them for for data they can hand it right over they have the processes in place and then there are a bunch of places that do not have that have neither the resources nor the sort of infrastructure or the understanding of what's required and don't do that and that's like just I think like we we thought at the outset that just publishing the data would be of use because journalists researchers would be able to use it to write better stories to understand the electorate better as it turns out actually doing the project is what has made me understand the process of elections better because now i know what people what local officials and state officials consider to be important to be crucial about about elections and elections results and that varies a lot which is the way that the constitution provides um, but it, it is also really informative in terms of how 
of getting a better understanding of what what elect you know like sort of how elections are run but also who shows up and how they vote and that is like it would be difficult now i think for us to cover uh, for journalists to cover a large statewide or federal election without understanding that stuff i think it's it's like it would be almost malpractice because certainly the campaigns house and senate and presidential campaigns they understand this stuff and they devote resources to understanding it and it would be a dereliction of duty if journalists didn't do the same thing uh, and so we're trying to fill like the the you know the data infrastructure pipeline a little bit here like lay a foundation uh, and it is like one of the best ways to learn about the subject is to try to collect data about that subject and uh, I, I've learned quite a lot over the last eight years about how elections are run and how they're reported on and what we know uh, about about voting and about the behavior, the sort of the, the voting behavior of of people and of and of jurisdictions at this county and state level. So it's it's been fun, but it's also like it's been a much more of an eye opener than, than I even anticipated. So this information is targeted to be consumed by by whom then? Is it the voters or is it? No, it's mostly. Yeah, it's mostly not the voters at this point. It's mostly folks who are uh, for journalists. Uh, we've had researchers. We also I mean, the one thing that we didn't anticipate, but makes sense, especially in the context of what we we're talking about with Congress, is that there are people who work for political campaigns and parties who not only make use of our data, but who volunteer on the project they see how they know how valuable it is to have that information and so like that's a real i mean in some ways like we never intended for that to be the use of it or among the uses of it but it's a real validation of just how important that information is because if it's important enough to political parties and candidates and consultants then as journalists like and researchers like we need to we need to understand why it's important to them and we need to understand like what the implicate, you know, like what we miss, what we don't know by by not including that in sort of our our regular rounds. I think like we, in a lot of respects with elections, too often as journalists, we we end up bringing like a knife to a gunfight, basically, in the sense of like we don't know what we don't know, and it's like it, my concern, and it's not one that was born out of the project per se but my concern is that like as like a national media context that that we really fail to understand the electorate like we really the, the picture we present of an election prior to it occurring and is vastly different from the result and we're we've gotten close to that like we've gotten close to like not really understanding what was happening and then not learning the lessons from from previous elections and that's that's a it's a very dangerous place for for journalism to be in uh we don't need any more help in in terms of people giving re we don't need to give pe give people more reasons not to, not to trust or consider 
uh, us competent at what, what we're doing. We need to like give them reasons to that would bolster their confidence in us. And I think I think elections are very, very, you know, like a very, very clear way for people to judge the performance in terms of like the stuff that you were talking about that didn't happen at all or or you you, you didn't anticipate this or, or i don't you know like i still haven't heard a, a satisfactory explanation for why you know this occurred and man that is uh that is not a great place for us to be as journalists and i and i hope we i hope we do everything we can to avoid it what about in terms of the primaries you know a lot of candidates focus on the prime or incumbents anyway, or seem to be fearful of primaries um, and vocal minorities within even their own party, you know, potentially displacing them or, or getting a rogue candidates in there that could eventually win. Um, how do you cover that kind of data? Or is it even possible? It's possible, but it's not like, it's much harder in the sense that like primaries are like, their own creatures in in some in, in many states. Uh, there there are states in which the Secretary of State, like Missouri, for example, doesn't collect at a at a centralized level. They don't collect primary precinct results because they are run primarily by the parties at a local level, which is how it should be, uh, you know, in many places. And 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 but that the result there is the out you know is that we know less about sort of what happened in a particular primary, right? And like, that's a, I think we're getting better at covering primaries in a way that is, that takes more stock of sort of the, the administration of them, like how they are run, the method of choosing people. Like that, that is a, we're having a big argument in Virginia this year about their gubernatorial primary and, and the way that the Republicans will hold that that primary, that that particular nominating process, and I think like the more that we talk about those things, probably the probably the the better it's going to be for people to understand what's going on, but also the more we're going to learn as journalists. But it is it is hard because there are a lot of there are a lot of reporting variances in primaries that that don't occur at the general election level. Like the in rural areas, there are plenty of places that just simply collapse precincts into one, like multiple precincts into one precinct, which is, again, understandable because it's fewer voters in a primary than a general, but it makes like comparisons somewhat trickier. Uh, it makes it harder to understand like exactly what happened in some places. And, and so we, I suspect a national project, a project like ours with a national scope is probably not going to be the best way for us to advance knowledge about primaries. I think really the way to do that is uh, state by state, essentially to have like folks, journalists in a state who really understand their primary processes and really, you know, collect the, the information they need and report on that. And like that, that's where, I think like the actual value is going to come because the the variances the differences are so great uh, between states for primaries compared to a general election that it really matters and like it's tough to be sort of it's tough to speak with confidence nationwide about a primary <laughs> election uh, and and so I try not to do it very much. Great. Well, let's move on to the the questions that I ask all of our. Um, 
all of our guests so that in the future we can compare them all, uh, compare all the answers. Um, so we, we call this kind of our lightning round. Are you ready to sure. move on to the lightning round? Yep. All right. The first question is, it relates a little bit to what we talked earlier, but what do you think congressional representation should mean? I think it should mean being responsive to the concerns of your constituents. I think it means just simply knowing what they knowing what they want and expect or how they think and feel. And I think representatives are entitled to act differently, but I think like the knowledge of it is the key point of representation. Got it. So they should know their districts, needs, problems. Um, but then when they ultimately vote or create bills, they should be exercising their own judgment. Is that your yeah, I think I, I think there are certain things that I, I think there are certain things that where that's required, frankly. I mean, not not everything per se, but I think like I think it's it's in that's the to me that that's the distinction between a representative government and direct democracy. Got it. And, but it sounds like from your 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 answer just there that there are instances where the representative should reflect the beliefs of his district rather than make his own judgments. I th I think there are I think there are some. I think in particular when it, it I, when it concerns like a relatively parochial concern and by that i mean like for example uh i'm thinking about like the everglades in florida which is a federal a state and federal pro a local state and federal issue and problem and all levels of government have have a role to play in it but it is also a problem that for the most part doesn't affect like you know maine or alabama or mississippi right and so like but i think like florida representatives would be uh, pretty well advised to pay attention to what their constituents think about about sort of Everglades pollution and and the ecological impacts of of stormwater and all these sort of things. And I think like that is a I think I think if they have differing views that you know dramatically different views from their from their constituents, uh, they had probably had better be really good at explaining them um, because I, because I think like. It's going to be very tough, I think, to gain the trust and confidence of of your constituency without being able to really explain yourself when there are pretty divergent views at play. All right. Next one is: How would your ideal Congress allocate its time? <laughs> um, probably more committee work. Um, I think more committee work, and I don't know that. I don't know that I have a perfect idea of like like a requirement for that, but I think more committee work is probably a a, a pretty good thing. And 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 by committee work, I mean like more more actual work than sort of like show things. Uh, it, you know, I'd I'd much rather see like oversight and markups than kind of like open ended hearings that are, you know, that are really kind of getting people to say to getting people to say to them what they would already say to to them in private or in public in, in you know if they just met them walking walking across town essentially like i think like more meaningful committee work would be my answer and how about the balance between dc and the home district i actually i guess i i think like i don't 
I don't know that I have a real hard and fast thing on this, except that I, I would tend to trust the judgment of the member in the sense that like, I don't, I don't know that it's a impossibility, especially now to keep tabs on what's going on in your district, depending on, depending on the district, uh, while also spending significant portions of time in Washington. Like I, I think that, I think that's also what you have staff for in some respects. Um, and I think like there are lots of ways to, to be aware of what is going on in the district and to know what your constituents are thinking and talking about and hearing that don't necessarily require the member to be there all the time or a lot of the time. Uh, but I, but I think like members have to like really think about that, like, uh, like, and really decide like what the process is, but I'm not, and maybe this is sort of like, I've been in DC too long sort of thing. I'm not like personally, like the, you know, folks spend more time in DC. I don't necessarily think that uh, is a, a mark against them per se. All right. Next one is how should debate deliberation or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? So this is probably colored by the fact that like I mostly covered the house when I was in when I was in the uh, congressional correspondent and I'm much more of a house person as a result I think. Um that said I think there's a lot to admire about like sort of the Senate's uh rules about uh you know consent and and cooperation uh, but I do think that like it makes sense to have rules for debate and I think it makes sense to expect and maybe even encourage members to understand those rules and to try to innovate within those rules and act like i think the presence of rules encourages folks can encourage folks to like think creatively about the use of those rules and i think so like rules are sometimes both necessary constraints but also like can can also spur some innovation can spur some creativity and i think uh, so like I come probably come down more on like, I think members should be given a certain amount of freedom to to debate, but I think there's got to be rules governing what the what those how those debates are structured, and what is and isn't allowed. And would that be in committees? Would it be on the floor? Where would it be? Yeah, I think like, I, I think I would probably have more probably more rigid rules for the floor, I suppose. Uh, but maybe not too much. I think like, I think committees should be probably like a little more liberal in what they accept in committee, you know, cause I, I think, I think committees are where you probably can, you can spend some extra time kind of digging into something uh, because that's the reason you're there. Uh, whereas, and it's a small enough group that that's probably more useful and more productive. Um, I think like the, the size of like the whole house, for example, makes it, somewhat harder to have like what we would call like authentic debate. Um, although I don't think it's as hard as they, as it seems. I, I think we could actually have authentic debate if members wanted to have authentic debate. I just think that the incentives for them right now are not, not, not there to, or they don't pay attention to them in order to really spur that on. Right. Next question is what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? 50 years. Uh, it's a really great question. I think um, I would hope 
that within 50 years that Congress is more able to is better able to dispense with things that are well what's the way I'm trying to say this I guess I think uh, within 50 years I think Congress should be a more responsive body in the sense that it should not need to take as much time to figure out what people think about an issue um, and that's mostly for the House because the Senate is literally designed to like take more time to figure out what it thinks about an issue. But I think even so, like, I think people will both want and probably demand that Congress be more responsive in the sense that it will be able to respond faster to particularly like really complicated or really not necessarily but pressing national issues, um, natural disasters, uh, you know, severe economic downturns. And I think like it should be the the changes that folks should make that Congress should make would enable it to be done in a process that didn't seem like it was just sort of pushed together by a handful of people in a room somewhere. Uh, like I'm thinking mostly about omnibus bills, frankly, which are sometimes necessary, but are I think like that's maybe one of the worst ways that Congress goes about its business right now. And I would hope they'd figure out a better way to to deal with those sorts of situations without resorting to pretty draconian processes that leave out members and also don't seem to like that just vest, just vest the authority in, in a handful of members and leave the rest of them out. So I'm trying to understand your meaning here. So you're saying that there should be more kind of real time feedback from districts? I think that's part of it. And I think that's a, probably a fairly easy thing to, to accomplish. Uh, given given sort of technology and given where you know the our abilities uh, to communicate, I think also um, I think the other thing would be essentially to have a better process for responding to yeah pretty significant immediate circumstances um, because I, I feel like I feel like the processes that we have for like responding to major disasters and things like that are not great uh and i'm not sure i like it's a little unsatisfying my answer is because i don't know essentially uh, just do this or do that or plug this in and plug this out or change this and it'll be different but it commit but like a a legislative process that is devoted to or or in theory devoted to understanding or understanding a subject deliberating and producing legislation that is thoughtful uh and response and responsive, but also like fairly comprehensive, is not probably the best thing to do or best process for when you need to get something done fairly quickly that is of pretty significant importance or has an impact to everybody uh, on every on the nation and or on a large segment of the population. And I think that I think we we haven't really, I haven't really seen Congress sort of figure out a better way to do that. Uh, and maybe there isn't a better way to do that, but like, maybe we should try to figure out if there's a better way to do that. All right, got it. So you, you, you have in mind some kind of procedure to deal with more emergency type situations where it can be more inclusive, the legislative process can be more inclusive. Yeah, and yeah, and, and, and more inclusive and also enable Congress to sort of know, to enable more of Congress to know what is going on 
not just legislatively, but what is going on with that particular issue um, to, to make it so that like, because on, on issues of really like critical importance that are immediate, we would expect the people making the decision on those to have a pretty good understanding of not only the situation and the policy options, but the potential consequences of those policy options. And it feels like we don't we don't have a process that 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 makes that likely now. Uh, and and I I don't think we're likely to have fewer of let's say natural disasters in the next 50 years like i don't think we're gonna have a period where we're like oh nothing everything's gonna be great uh and and we're not gonna face things like i think we are gonna face things like that and i think you know whether whether that's some sort of like whether that's some sort of ad hoc process that that is written down though at least but like can be spun off immediately um you know because like it takes months to get like a, a a select committee right it takes months to it takes you know weeks for approaches to write a uh, uh to write an omnibus bill uh and and like i understand for some of those i understand that but like for especially with like omnibus appropriations like that's going to take a while because regular appropriation takes a while but in terms of responding to very specific issues and events i'm not sure like it, it doesn't feel like we have a, a great way to do that. That actually lets people participate and and rewards like expertise. Right. All right. Next one is what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? I think the one that really, <laughs> it's not like a single article or a single book, but but essentially, I was in college when I learned about uh, Izzy Stone, I F Stone and his newsletter and and what he would do is when other congressional reporters weren't doing it he would go and read the record in committee reports and then he would write about them and it seems like a really simple basic thing but like people literally weren't looking at this stuff like congress was churning out reports churning out legislation people weren't reading it journalists weren't reading it and I think like any approach like that has always stuck with me in the sense that like I think any approach to understanding Congress has to be predicated on you got to look at what they do like not just what they say but like look at what they do and I think that's that's been the thing that has really been the foundational was that it was a foundational moment for me because it was really like oh here's a guy who was not an insider at all, pretty well loathed by a lot of members of Congress, but he just read what they did. And like the politics of it aside, uh, the technique, like the actual application of his craft, like to me, like that's the right one is we gotta, we gotta read what they do. We gotta see, you know, be able to see and read the output of their, of their work. And without that, I don't think you understand Congress and I and so there and and without that without understanding Congress I think attempts at like improving it are really difficult so I'd say I have stone great all right well the last one question is you know around your plans for the future what do you what do you plan to do around journalism and then on the other side what do you plan to do around data and and your election project 
So I guess my uh, plans are essentially to make it uh, like in a selfish aspect, I'd like to make it possible for me to um, get better stories through less work. And I'll explain what that means essentially. Like I'd like to have to build and refine the systems that I now have to make it possible for me to spot stuff that I wouldn't spot uh, and suggest stories that I wouldn't have thought of. Um, I think also like broader than that, like I wanna make it possible that the data becomes like a first class citizen in, in, in reporting. That for a long time for like, th this has been like good for me, like as a career in the sense in the profession, in the sense that like, despite having two English teachers for parents, like my writing is okay, like it's good enough, but I'm not gonna be hired by the New York Times or Washington Post solely on the basis of my ability to write. Uh, and so being somebody who has been able to specialize in data has been very, very, it's been very good for me. It's been very good for my career, but it's not good for journalism if it remains a specialty because it can be the first thing to go then, or uh, it's something that's not well understood even now within journalism. The number of like people in high ranking positions in journalism who have any sort of experience in using data is vanishingly small. And so uh, I'd like to change that. Uh, whether that's me or whether that's people who come after me, it doesn't matter to me uh, so much, but like we gotta get people in journalism who don't treat what I do as some sort of like some sort of magic, uh, which too often it is. And people now will say the right things. Oh, we've got to have data or yeah, you know, like I love when we do these data things and but that's a good start, but it's not sufficient because like we don't have enough people in, in who are running teams or running organization, news organizations who really understand what this work is and what it could be. And so that, I think like that's the long-term goal is to fix that. Great, well, Derek, thanks so much for joining us. Much appreciate your work. Sure, thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.